everyone. My name's Chris Gordon. I'm the Readings Event Manager and welcome to the Readings Podcast. Today I am delighted, completely and utterly delighted to be sitting here with Claire Press. Claire Press, let me tell you all about her before you even hear her voice, is the presenter of the Wardrobe Crisis Podcast and Australian Vogue's Sustainability Editor-at-Large. She is a passionate advocate for ethical fashion. She's Australia's go-to journalist on the subject and sits on the Australian Advisory Board of Fashion Revolution. She's the author of three books. Her first, The Dressing Table, was a collection of essays on style. Her second, Wardrobe Crisis, How We Went from Sunday Best to Fast Fashion, was named one of the best books of 2016 and was published in America in 2018. Today, though, we're going to be talking about her third book, which is Rise and Resist, How to Change the World, and it's about activism, and it's actually quite an extraordinary sort of expose on what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what we could be doing. Uh, Other news about Claire is that she's a magazine junkie, she's a former Vogue Features Director and a Marie Claire Fashion Editor. She was also the Features Director at the Australian edition of the Sunday Star. Uh, Her words have reached three million readers and until recently she penned Daily Life's popular sustainability style column. And many, many eons ago, you ran a vintage store. There is a theme to your work, Claire. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Such a treat for me. So you've written this extraordinary, powerful and hopefully very influential book, Rise and Resist. You've researched it incredibly well, I thought. And so your chapters range from everything from the incredible women's marches right through to the tiny house movement. There's actually quite a lot of movements going on at the moment. Uh, People have been changing the way that we live since the beginning of time, but you seem to have captured a moment in our history. Was that your aim? I had this idea that what we're living through now is a time that could be compared to that of the 1960s where more and more people are kind of rising up and resisting to use the title, but to try to reshape our world in a different way. I'm quite 60s obsessed. That doesn't come out so clearly in the book in the end, but that was kind of my starting point. I was thinking about those times of revolution when all the kids took to the streets and said, we don't want the world to look like it used to. We want to remake it in our own ideal image. That kind of became this book about modern activism. Now, I come at this from fashion, as you mentioned, and you might think that's a strange way to come at it. I think it's actually sensible. I work now in sustainable fashion, and I like this idea of being a fashion activist. And if you think that sounds a bit silly or a bit crazy, it actually doesn't, because the global fashion industry is a giant, impactful global industry that has huge ramifications on people and planet. It's, It's the second biggest polluter after oil and gas, would you believe? I would, actually. And then also in terms of fashion, like if if people are aware of the Rana Plaza factory disaster that happened in Bangladesh in 2013, where those buildings collapsed, killing more than 1,134 people, then we're talking about social activism. Most garment workers are women, so we're talking about feminism, we're talking about social justice. So all these elements kind of come into my work, but what I wanted to do with this book is to make those connections and say, if you care about sustainability, if you care about, I don't care where you come from it, come at it from, if you care about sustainable fashion or sustainable food or how we impact on our natural world, these issues are all connected. 
And what I wanted to do was then tell stories of people getting together to change the world into a more sustainable one. I think it's the result is quite extraordinary. It's very uplifting in a way, your, your book. I, oh, I think. thank you. Yeah, I think it's terrific in that way. But I, I wondered, did you think is the written word the way to uh, spread the word, so to speak? Oh, it's one of them. The reason why I said, oh, thank you with so much enthusiasm then was because I really wanted to focus on the positivity in this piece. This book explores some pretty grim things, for example, climate change, plastic pollution. We've talked about the women's marches, but the cultural context of feminism right now. Big stuff, scary stuff, sometimes overwhelming and upsetting. But I wanted it to be really positive. Hopefully I've done that, you know, by sharing stories of people who are taking positive action. But is the written word the way to spread this it's my way because I'm a journalist but I think that action is the key here so writing's marvellous fantastic I'm doing it but what I really celebrate is people getting out into the streets and community and doing so writing's not enough so what sort of influenced you to become this this warrior of of type why are you who you are I spent 20 years working in in the fashion media Mm -hmm. business But I studied politics at university and I was always an ardent environmentalist. I've always cared about people too. And I think for, you know, three quarters of my career, I kind of forgot that a bit. I was building my career. I was telling you what sandals to buy. I was telling you what hem lengths were going to be for spring. Thank you. Thank you. you know, that's fine. (laughs) But it's also, for me, it became unfulfilling. Yeah, right. I got bored of it and I thought it wasn't meaningful enough. And I'm not slagging off other journalists who do that fantastic work. It is good work. But for me, it just became not enough. And I think that in the last five years, I've been trying to find my purpose. And in doing that, I've found motivation and momentum in trying to be a change maker. And I come at it from fashion, as I say, but I also want to... Fashion's an an interesting business because it has great reach and great power. It makes headlines. Think about like, you know, news headlines are often who wore what on the red carpet, which seems so ridiculous. But actually what that shows is that fashion has big reach so if I can harness that world to start new conversations about things that do matter to me then I think that's a powerful thing and why not be a fashion activist why not be an activist in whatever area in your life that you have the most influence I couldn't agree with you more but I'm interested I mean is is your family do you come from a sort of a, a group of activists or is this something that is sort of self-taught or self-propelled. Chris, you and I, before we started recording this, were talking about our shared Yorkshire experience. (laughs) And we said, let's not do this in a Yorkshire accent. It might be hard to listen to, but I come from Yorkshire in the north of England. Um, Teachers have been done over the Yorkshire, haven't they? They've been done over. Yorkshire's grand, right? (laughs) My stepfather is a very formative influence in my life. He's a social geographer, he's been a lecturer, and he's an activist, and he's a social justice campaigner, and he's a table thumping. (laughs) Couldn't even say that, right? I want to to thump the table. He's a kind of ardent, table thumping social justice warrior himself. And when I first started working in fashion, I can remember very clearly him saying to me, skirts that's not gonna change the world he's got a great accent like that shout out to andrew and you know what i think now he would say maybe it will he'd be incredibly proud i would imagine yeah love him (laughs) (laughs) but i think we're all we are the sum of our experiences there's been many people who've influenced me along the way and writing this book i've become more and more influenced and motivated by meeting 
change makers, particularly in the environmental space. So you do do, uh, throughout the book, there's some extraordinary, wonderful quotes from different change makers, as you say. Is there someone there in that sort of group of uh, people that you've researched and people that you've interviewed that has stood out to you as someone who is doing something that's making a huge impact globally? Globally? Globally. I pray at the Church of Oprah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that there are some big voices on alone. the international You're not stage. Alone, mate. I'm sort of joking, but sort of not, because yeah. I also the book begins with the women's marches and it explores some of the movements that have built up as a result of and around that. And it talks about the Me Too movement. I share the story of the founder of that phrase and that initiative, Tarana Burke, who talks about it being a moment, not a movement. And I share Oprah's great speech that she made when she accepted the Cecil B. DeMille Award for General Awesomeness. I'm not sure what it's actually called. And she talked about social justice and she talked about, I you know, um, representation and the need for women to stand up and different voices to be heard. So in a way go Oprah. But I think the answer to your question is actually a little bit smaller. Go on. The stories that were most motivating to me when it came to writing this book were actually the stories of people who are not famous. Yeah, right. This to me is really about ordinary people on the streets in their communities. This is the drops of water making up an ocean. And that's what motivates me. So, okay, fine, famous, brilliant people, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, these people, particularly in the climate change space, have been enormously important to movement building. But a movement is just people moving. To paraphrase Gloria Steinem, we need we need all members of the community to take action and get involved. A good example, probably my favourite, is the story I tell in the book of a guy called Andrew Barker, who is based in South Australia, outside Adelaide in the Hills, and he began this movement called Grow Free. It's such a beautiful story Mm. and it's so simple and yet so big. Tell us all about it. His idea was, and again, it's just so simple, it's weird. Mm. His idea was, why not grow fruit and give it away? Yeah. I mean, why don't we do that? Why don't we? We actually did it in the se- just after the Second World War. We actually did do that. We had these kind of sort of community gardens and, and, and people could go and help themselves. His idea was, I've got a big garden. I'm a gardener. He started to grow seedlings and then tried to give them away. He put up some notices around his community and said, free seedlings. Mm. In the end, everyone who needed seedlings in his village had already got enough. And they started saying, what else can we do to help? We don't need any more seedlings. And they started going on worker bees in other people's gardens to help them grow their own food. This then grew into this idea that anyone who had a bit of patch of dirt, anyone who had some space for some pots, could grow herbs, could grow veggies, and then give them away on these tables called grow free tables, which were like reclaimed carts that were just dotted around the community. This thing took wings and now lots of people do it. And the most beautiful thing about it is that he set it up to be not about seeking um, kudos or even um, understanding who was taking the food. So you do it just completely altruistically. Yeah. You don't know who took it, but you know you did something good. Mm. And then it grows. It's such a great idea. Uh, and it did remind me of those sort of wonderful victory gardens that started after the Second World War, where people would just needed to share and they needed to share their food and they needed to share the conversations too, because this is actually what activism seems to be. And one of the themes I thought in your book was this is actually just about people talking to one another, or perhaps more importantly, what you say in the book is listening. That's so important. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm now pausing to listen. Yeah, listen. (laughs) 
one of the stories that I enjoyed reading in your book was when you uh, decided to go up and protest. I think it's in was it in South Australia? No, in New South Wales, up in the Hunter Valley. Oh, and you, you jump on this bus really with complete strangers. You don't know these people, but all of you have been brought together by this common sort of goal of going out and stopping something. Can you share with us about that experience? One of the stories that I tell in the book is about an organisation called Lock the Gate. Yeah, that's it. That's the one I'm thinking of. It was of. set up by a guy called Drew Hutton and its purpose is to get farmers to get, to get together and basically physically lock their gates to say, no, you cannot come and test for mining and fracking on our land. We don't want you to mine on our land. The political context and the law behind this is quite complex. I would urge you to read the book. But Lock the Gate is a fascinating organisation because it brings together people who wouldn't normally be conceived of uh, or... It brings together people who you wouldn't normally expect to be classic protesters, but they're people with a cause to fight. So I loved it. There was sort of, you, you describe the people that are sort of jumping on this bus and there's, you know, a, a French backpacker, there's, you know, a sort of a, a well-to-do kind of couple, I think an, an older all different couple. people. Yeah. And it was, it's interesting because it just shows that we can come together in support of an issue when we believe that something is wrong, mm. when we want to stand up and speak out and say, this isn't good enough. Mm. And I think that mining in the Hunter Valley story is one of those issues. What really shocked me about it was that it's on my doorstep. I live in Sydney. Mm. It's not very far away. And yet I had no idea the kind of desecration of the landscape that's being that's being done by these international mining companies. And to me, it was quite horrific. And I felt like we hear all about Stopadani, which I also write about at length in the book. And so we should, because the way that we are damaging our barrier reef is oh. just reprehensible stuff. But the hunter is just as bad. You know, this, this is about communities being ruined and destroyed by big, faceless, multinational companies. And for what? So that we can dig up and mine for more fossil fuels that are going to add to our climate change problem. It's all about money, and to me, it makes me want to rise and resist. It does. It's complete bonkers, isn't it? When you sort of just talk about it so simply like that, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it at all. Well, there is rhyme or reason, and it's money. money. It's money. It's all about money. Follow the money. Yeah. But I think that that's one of the things that comes out in this book. Um, We can feel powerless when faced with the big multinational companies or governments that we perceive as being distant from us. We can feel like the little people who have no power, but actually when we band together, we can take our power back. And that's kind of the central story of this book. There's such an extraordinary feeling, isn't there, when you go to a protest yourself? When I was thinking about uh, the women's marches, I didn't actually go to the, obviously, they were over in America, but uh, one of my mates was over in LA at the time and she went on one of those enormous marches uh, it went she was out for six hours walking along and it's exciting she good one energy of the, one of the best days of her life because there she was talking to uh, you know a whole range of different people students right through to sort of grandmothers and people were banding together people were crying uh, people were taking photos of one another it seemed like she, she was almost like a, like it was like a, being at a rave or something like that. Because you've got this shared feeling yeah. of um, energy and of taking action, but also of connectivity. And I think that one of the reasons why marches are on the rise right now is that we have become so distant from one another. We live so much of our lives online. It's lovely to get this chance to get together in real life around a shared cause. 
and which is why I imagine that some of these grassroots sort of activism works as well because it is about people connecting again that somewhere in this very fast world that we're living in we seem to have lost that art of just having a conversation with the person that lives two doors down. I like the idea that even that can be activism. Mm. And in the book, I talk about craftivism as a movement. And if you're not aware of that, it's quite Go lovely. On, tell, tell us more. Gentle activism Go is on. the phrase that one of the sort of foremost proponents of this in the UK uses. Her name is Sarah Corbett. And she says, if you want your world to be a more beautiful, kind and fair place, why not make your activism more beautiful, fair and kind? So instead of like waving a placard and shouting and ranting, she's all about like, let's stitch our rebellion. Let's make a sampler with a political message. Let's knit our rebellion. Yeah. Quite love that. I love that too. Yeah. Uh, so there's, some, I mean, what is also terrific about that is that it's not new. Oh my goodness, no. It's just not new. Like you think about the women of Eureka or whatever that... Suffragettes. The suffragettes that just pulled together whatever they had and, and sewed it all up. Suffragettes were sewing banners, they were sewing ribbons in those colours of the green and the purple and the white. Actually, women have always got together and made change through the mediums that were familiar to them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all sit around in the kitchen and sew and that's the only way, but I do think there's power in that and there's nothing wrong with that. And the ways that we can form groups and make space to talk about issues, whatever floats your boat, whatever works for you. And if that's stitching or knitting in a group, I think it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic. And I do actually think that most activism does start in the kitchen. I think it does start over a cup of tea or a glass of wine and an idea and just two people gas bagging and saying, let's go out and do it. It's that courage that's needed, though, isn't it, to well, make the next step? we need each other. Just to go back to what you were saying before, we, we are creatures who need each other. That's the human condition. And being isolated whether by choice because you just want to sit there staring at your phone all day or whether through, I guess, the breakdown of communities and the fact that we don't, we're more transient, we don't necessarily know our neighbours, all that stuff, it makes us feel alone. And mm. so I think we yearn for connection. And part of this whole boom in activism is about that. It's just about getting together and, and saying, what kind of world do we want to live in and how can we, how can we work together to build that? And it's so different, isn't it, from, you know, what we see in the corridors of power when we see Trump. I mean, it couldn't be more different, right? Or even when we see our own. Who's Prime Minister? I can't remember. Yeah, at the moment. <laughs> That's right. Scotty. Boom, boom. Um, but, you know, when we when we see those icy or unrelatable corridors of power with things that go on that we don't relate to and that make us feel frustrated, I think some of the answer is reconnecting in community. Mm. I was delighted that you had a chapter about some of the young people and the types of activism that's going on now because surely uh, surely our hope has to lie in another generation just doing things differently. You talked about the sort of reaction to the school shootings as a type of activism. Oh, those kids. I mean, that woman, Emma, I mean, she is, she blows your mind. But I did read somewhere that... Actually, that generation, those people under 20, are used to activism because all of the books that they've been reading their whole entire life are dystopian type of fiction. Oh, I haven't heard that. Yeah. So you think about The Hunger Games or you think about even Harry Potter. These are the sort of, those characters are activists. And so when it came their time that they had to stand up and say, hey, we don't like the way that you're doing this. We don't trust in your actions anymore. 
these are words that have been used from some of their literary heroes. Yeah, I love it. What, do you like that as a thing? I love it. I haven't considered it before, yeah. but it's actually a brilliant idea and I think it's probably right. I mean, I have great faith in the next generation. So I'm 42. How did that happen? Yeah. And yeah, well, it's the answer, I feel apparently. like a kid. <laughs> it's the answer. <laughs> but I look at, I do a lot of work with students. I talk a lot at universities and I have never met a younger person who doesn't care about the future of our planet, who yeah. isn't interested in sustainability, inequality, in diversity. Gen Y and particularly Gen Z coming up, they're the most value-driven generations yet. And I'm not just making that up. There's lots of stats around that, around how they shop their values, who they support politically, how they want to get engaged. My view is that it's total rubbish that young people are apathetic. Oh, I think it's complete rubbish. They, of course, will be the ones that make the, the decisions about what our world's going to look like in future. And they're hungry to start doing it. Yeah. They don't want to be dictated to by a bunch of old white men. <laughs> And nor do I, frankly. Nor, nor do I. We're, we're tired of them. We're so tired of them. Going back to your sort of, your your common thread of fashion and then young people, like I do believe that more young people are now shopping in sort of vintage shops, in secondhand shops. You go to one of those sort of uh, markets on a Saturday and they're completely filled with people under 20. So in some ways the fashion world is changing, surely, by what those young people are buying. I think it is. I also think that I can be guilty of feeling like, of living in a bubble and thinking that everybody's totally on to like, secondhand is not second best. Everyone's on to sustainability. I think it depends where you look. Hmm. There are certainly lots of young women and fashion fans who want to still buy fast fashion, who look at Kim Kardashian and want to be like that. Um, that's all still out there, but I do feel that there's a groundswell of interest in yeah. a more sustainable fashion future. And, you know, you see it on Instagram, you see it, as you say, in real life, in markets. It's actually National Op Shop Week, and I'm dressed ah. entirely in thrifted outfits this week. Those kinds of campaigns get people thinking about this, about wastefulness, and again, just what sort of future do you want for yourself and for the planet? What's happened, I think the, the greatest change that's happened uh, in my time is that secondhand is cool. But then I feel like secondhand was cool when I was a kid too. I think these things are quite circular. Um, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have a lot of money and Up we didn't Yorkshire. have fast fashion. No. Fast fashion wasn't a thing. There was Topshop, but it wasn't what it's like now <laughs> and you couldn't afford it. So you would go and get stuff from Oxfam, which is yeah. like the equivalent of Vinnie's in, in the UK. And you would make things and draw on the back of your jackets and cut your jeans off and be more creative with fashion. And that was something I always loved. But I think it's coming back. Oh, I think it's comp it is back, I reckon. Just not sure it ever went away. I think what's different now is that we did it because we were a bit skint and we were creative, whereas now younger people are doing it for more political reasons as well, because they're saying we don't like this profligate wastefulness of fast fashion and we want to do things differently for social reasons. And that's interesting. Because there are some brands that are... Uh, trying hard on that. Like I'm thinking about Sports Girl, for example, that now have a range of recycled clothes that you can buy. Or Lots of high street brands are dipping their toes in the waters of this because they recognise that, as I said, the, the, the new generations are value driven and they are not going to shop with you if you have got, haven't got a line on this. Mm. But I think we need to see a little bit more integrity in it. Mm. Mm. Good. Not just a capsule, you know? Yeah, I Take agree. it further. Absolutely. So, uh, 
to we're coming to the sort of the end of our discussion a couple of questions that I would love you to answer do you uh do you have like a, a role model for your work or do you feel like that you, in some ways you're alone talking about ways that we can change the way no, that we live. definitely don't feel alone. I feel enormously... In, invig- in relation to fashion, I should say. Not yeah, just- but even that, like, I feel really, really invigorated by all the people that I talk to. You mentioned that I have a podcast. It's my favourite thing. Because yeah. you're talking to people who are lending you their ears. It's such a privilege. And it's amazing because they come and they tell you what they think. Yeah. And they, as particularly, I'm an Instagram person. At Mrs Press, you can find me. And people send me messages. And it's a conversation. And then it it stops being this us and them thing. I don't want to be this beacon of vogueness alone. I want to actually be having conversation. And I'm seeing that conversation grow and it all comes back to this idea of movement building. So I don't really have a role model unless it's you. Like it's the people listening and I don't mean that to sound cheesy, but it's actually true. Yeah, that's really nice actually. Are you exhausted? (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) I bet. It's a lot to carry around um, because you, know you always have to be looking and you always have to be listening. I'm not really exhausted. I'm, sometimes I'm exhausted because I quite like sleep <laughs> and writing a book is quite hard. <laughs> but generally speaking, I'm energised. I think if you have work with purpose, it gets its own fuel. And I mentioned before that I used to do a different kind of job. I was tireder then. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. The old sort of adage, if you find work that you love, you will never be never be tired, you'll never be bored. You'll I never think be- you can be tired (laughs) but I think that you can't be jaded yeah and you can't be exhausted emotionally congratulations mate thanks mate can we end on a Yorkshire note well we we can (laughs) but I do want to ask one final question and we do ask this at every single podcast because we are quite our you know, we're a bookshop. What can I say? We're just a bookshop. So we need to know. What are you reading right now, Claire Press? What are you reading? I'm slightly ashamed to admit that I am reading the Michael Wolff book about Donald Trump. Why are you ashamed? Because it's written by another white man or? <laughs> no, because I just don't, I'm not, it didn't sit comfortably with me that I would be spending my nights in bed with Trump. And I read it <laughs> night. And for months Please, I resisted no one, buying it. No one can quote Claire on that ever. Ever, uh, but you know what? It's a page turner, and um, it's juicy. Oh, you can't it's put juicy. it down. The revelations about this man and how he rules and how the White House is operating right now are fascinating. Mm. It's kind of like it's car crash stuff. It is. It is, and we're still watching it. Yeah, bugger. Mm. I want to read something a bit happier next. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, mate, I've just finished reading this terrific book. Rise and resist. <laughs> How to change the world. I was like on the, the edge of my chair then going, what are you going to recommend? I'm going to get it. I highly recommend your book. I found it moving. I got a little teary at times. I read some to my children, my children are 18 and <gasps> 20. Yes. I read some out loud to them and spoke to them about my sort of theory of uh, different role models. And I think that what you've done is that you've created a time capsule of our world when we're all moving and we're all desperately, desperately hoping for something better. So for that, thank you so much, Claire Perez, and thank you for your time today. Don't make me cry. Oh, darling. Thanks for having me. Such a treat. Such a treat. (laughs) 